teeny tiny working hard. It's a John Curley, Sherry Elliger show without Sherry Elliger. Jack Stein's here filling in, diving in. Went up the high dive. Took me a little longer to get to the top of the step there. <laughs> All righty. This is a sad, sad. You know, I, I read this story in USA Today about Russell Wilson. And uh, they dug in. They said they spent six months to do the investigation into this thing, which is when a lot of news organizations don't spend that much time on these things anymore. But uh, after six months, what do they find out, Jack? So apparently uh, the amount of money that they were taking in, which is, uh, if I'm reading this correctly, the according to the form 990 federal tax returns, the Why Not You Foundation generated $7.5 million in revenue and reported $7 million in expenses in its first eight years after its inception in 2014. That rounding, you know, I'm not really that good with math, John, but that looks like about maybe 20 cents out of every dollar, maybe 15 cents out of every dollar was uh, actually going to charity. And the rest was going to salaries, including people who are in Russell Wilson's family, uh, benefits packages, millions of dollars raised, and and basically as a as a as a program for his own little little company of people to make money off of charity. It's actually pretty sad in so many ways that Russell Wilson would would do this to people who thought that they were donating to a good cause, but were actually paying for vacations and benefits packages and health insurance for other people. Eesh. Um, I assume the beginning. Numbers weren't just startup costs, kind of, you know, buying office furniture and stuff like that. In order to yeah. get going. And once they get yeah. going, yeah. Do you want me to break it down for you even uh, more? The the chief, the chief strategy no, officer? No, it's, <laughs> it, it, uh, it's, you sure, John? Because they're, they're making John Curley money here. They're making John. <laughs> they're, not, they're not making yeah. Jack Stein money. I'll tell you that much, John. They're making uh, pretty good money here for somebody who, uh, you know, John, I, you work hard. You're a hardworking guy. Uh, the amount of time. So just as an instance, uh, a, a gentleman by the name of Pickett was paid $60,000 for 15 hours of work per week. Yeah. So that is a, an amazing amount of money for doing basically nothing. I had a, I raised money for about 60 or 70 nonprofits a year and probably about seven or eight years, maybe a little longer than that. I Just before I went up on stage to raise money for a particular nonprofit, this guy who was on the board, who's not on the board anymore, came over and he said, I can tell you something right now. These people are ripping ripping these people off. And I said, what do you mean? And then he told me the guy's brother's on the board, his sister's on the board. He's paying him 150000 each to be on the board. And the money, he goes, very little of this is going to research. It's just this, it's turned into this kind of cushy thing that um, that uh, the family is just ripping everybody off. I, I, that was just before I went up there. And then you had to stand on stage and said, we're trying to raise money. We're trying to be whatever it is that the organ. I won't say it out loud, what it was. And, and you had to think of, wow, you feel awful having people generously give, you know, 25000 or $50,000 thinking that they're finding a cure or helping somebody. And, there are a lot of these nonprofits, especially these uh, sports organizations. These sports guys get these things because it looks good and it's a way of kind of moving money around. Um, and if they've caught uh, Russell and the rest of the gang there with his, what's the name of the organization? 
something. Why you not you foundation? Or... The why not you foundation? Oh, and John, somebody did the math for me. It's twenty four point three cents out of every dollar. <laughs> okay, good. I'm glad they, glad you did the so math bad. for you. That's not so yeah. good. You can there's a um, na- uh, charitynavigator.org does a pretty good job of taking a look at all of the. Uh, federal forms that need to be filled out. They show how much money comes in and then they give them stars, you know, one to five or one to a, or zero to a hundred. And they basically tell you where the person, where that organization stands based upon the filters and based upon, you know, the, the algorithm that they, they, they put all the numbers through to determine, you know, are they doing a good job? Are they serving their purpose? Is the money being spent on the cause? How much is going to, um, you know, to overhead and then how much is actually going, uh, to the true causes. So this is, do we have sound from what this is? Oh, this is Jack, Jason Wolf, who was talking. He's worked on the USA Today piece. He said much of what, you know, the Russell Wilson foundation does in terms of saying that, oh, well, together we donated $10 million with Safeway and Albertson to Seattle Children's Hospital. It's like, okay, well, yeah, that might be true. Um, but when you look at the tax records, it's like 800,000 from the Russell Wilson Foundation, and it's 10 million from Safeway and Albertson. And half of that money was donated before Safeway and Albertson says they even partnered with the Russell Wilson Foundation. So, you know, you have this nonprofit that, that's taking credit for, for doing more than what its tax records reveal. Yeah, Wolf goes on to say that uh, paying people in the charity, this like you were just saying. The fact that the Why Not You Foundation is paying a quarter million dollars a year to an executive uh, who is also working for the Wilson family office, that raises major red flags for people in the nonprofit sector. That was from the GNR show Jason was on there. And then Mike Salk over on our sister station at the sports Another one of these stupid exaggerations. Oh, I don't sleep. Dude, everybody sleeps. (laughs) Everybody sleeps. You need sleep, too. And maybe if you were getting more sleep, you'd have time to notice what was going on in your foundation. It's just these exaggerations, the hyperbole, this this image that he seems to be trying to craft all the time. And then you know what's nice? It isn't true. (sighs) You seem seem vexed, John. No, I am for a number of reasons. I just, I, I want to believe he's a good guy. I think he struggles as to who he is. And people sort of point to, you know, like Samson, Goliath, Samson cutting off his hair. I forget the biblical. Who's the person that sort of was a David and Abishag, the Shunammite? I can't remember my biblical references, but it just feels like ever since Sierra came into his life. Where is it? Sierra came into his life. Things are going downhill for the guy. I don't know. I don't want to blame it on her, but I think he's always looking at someone's gotten to him and said, listen, you have to have a future after football. So get involved in this and get involved in that and, and, and have this as a, as a business and, you know, you know, let's sell bread eat the ball the remember all the bread that they brought in and did you were you there you weren't there you were going to Cairo they're dropping all these balls <laughs> foot shaped like a football and it was awful <laughs> and then he had this concussion drink You're supposed to drink that and, you know you'll get a concussion you recover from concussions yeah it just seems like everything he touched was sort of his had a stink on it and then this and then he had a cologne and a perfume and then this foundation and giving the money 
I would just, I would like to hope, I would hope to think that he's just busy trying to think about football and maybe he took his eye off of this and the foundation don't, you know, trust us. We'll, we'll work all this sort of stuff out. Um, I'll give you a great example. So the Jimmy V Foundation, which has been around for 25 years coming up, Jimmy Valvano, uh, outstanding coach in North Carolina, right before he dies, tells Bob Lloyd, Bob Lloyd was his roommate at Rutgers, said, listen, Bob, I, I, we got to do something. I can't just let this cancer take me down. You can watch him do his famous SB awards, right, about never give up, never give up, never give up. Mm-hmm. So he, uh, Jimmy dies, Jimmy Valvano dies, and then the uh, Jimmy V Foundation starts. And this thing is, if they, they don't take any salaries, so someone like Bob Lloyd, who's on the board, executive director, I think, Everywhere he flew, which is all across the country, he paid for his own bills. Everything that they did, they made sure that the money was not being spent other than, you know, the majority of it, huge amounts of the money uh, going directly to the cause of finding care for cancer. So that is an organization that is like, I mean, they run, you know, just bare bones, very little expense, and all of it going to find this cure. That's the example of like, that's the best, the best I had found of all the organizations. Like, there's other great ones as well, but that's a big, big one that people probably remember or probably know and maybe have supported. But you see this and you think, man, they're just using this thing as a honeypot and you're paying off your, your, your relatives and giving them big amounts of money. This is going to be the end of this organization. And then it also drags down Russell Wilson because now it seems like he's a dishonest individual. And he is not what he appears to be. Do you think it hurts, that they... it hurts me? Because he's he's my guy. He's my son's hero, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's this okay. idea of like yeah. we we make gods out of these guys. We make them demigods, yeah. right? They're great on the football field. Everybody loves them. They sell potato chips or sell whatever they're selling, <laughs> right? <laughs> Bitcoin or whatever else, and, and we we we've, we've made them. They're, they're celebrities, but they're heroes, but they're just, they have all of this power and we give them the power. And then they ask you for donations to different organizations and you just assume that they're honest. It just, it just hurts to see stories like this come out about Russell Wilson. My assumption is this, John, and please let me know what you think about this. Is that, uh-huh. is, is it somebody went to Russell and they said, let's start a foundation? All great athletes have a foundation. Michael Jordan, Tom Brady, they've all got LeBron James. They've all got a foundation. Let's do a foundation. And Russell Wilson being Russell Wilson goes, okay, that sounds like a great idea. They set it up for him. They do all the, the, the back end stuff. I don't think that he knew about any of it. So um, this is just me, my assumption. I think that he thought that everything was above board and he was being like LeBron James or Tom Brady. And I think that he thought that that was part of his legacy Again, this could be just my bias on this. I don't think that somebody who has a contract or has had the amount of money that he has had over his career is going to quibble over $7 million over the over eight years. I just don't see it. I think that this is somebody who tapped him on the shoulder and said, can we put your face on this foundation? I want to believe that. Okay. Um, because if not... The adverse would be he knew, and if he knew, then he knew that there was, you're not stealing necessarily, but you're not really delivering on what you say that you're going to deliver on, and you are intentionally moving money to places 
and it's not going to the cause. Um, there's a great TED Talk from the guy, one of the guys who used to work with um, the Race for the Cure, uh, Susan B. Coleman. And he was saying, you know, it's not fair if you judge organizations like ours by how much money goes to um, the actual cause. He says, you know, a big part of it needs to be spent on marketing because they were blasting away at them for why do you spend so much on the egos? Listen, if we spend, if we get a dollar and we spend, you know, 40 cents of that dollar on administrative and, and marketing and other things, but then it generates other money for us. You have to look at it, our sort of our business model in its totality and see the effects we're having. Um, and it's a really great speech to direct anybody to see that TED talk as he explains how to judge nonprofit success. But again, it's this thing where all of a sudden you find out that maybe someone is not as honest or they're not the person that you think that they are. He has definitely changed. Remember, he would do, you know, you know, always talking about God and Jesus. And then all of a sudden he stopped doing that. And some of the players that were working with him got tired of all of his sort of rah-rah stuff. They said that wasn't real either. And then who is this guy? And why do we need him to be a particular way? I forget who, what the athlete was. Oh, who was a famous sports athlete that said, I'm not a hero. Don't look up to me. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm not there to be idolized. I'm just there to play ball or whatever it was. I forget who made that famous comment about, you know, don't make me a hero. I'm not a hero. Um, and it might have, that might have been a Katy Perry song. Anyway, um, I guess they got some, I guess they got some explaining to do on this one. I think the, uh, the foundation did come out and they made a comment. I think King Five had that story as well, responding to it. No, no, no. You know, the money is here and the money's there and you say enough stuff that people's eyes sort of glaze over. So, um, whether they're going to be able to continue to raise funds or not, it's going to be a whole different story. Yeah, I, I don't think they will be. I mean, once you get this kind of PR, who wants to? Who would want to send money knowing that you're paying for somebody's cell phone bill? You know, who would want to? When it's supposed to be going to kids, why would you? Why would you send money knowing that a guy made sixty thousand dollars doing fifteen hours of of work as the chief financial consultant or whatever it is? Yeah, that's the, that's the shame about it, John. I think you know more about this than anybody else is that people like to give money to charity. They just want to know that it's going to a good cause and they want to know that it's it's actually, you know, it has the momentum behind it to actually get to kids or to dogs or orphans or whatever it is. And when you find out that it's going towards vacations and and packages like how these people were getting, I don't think you ever recover from that as an organization. No. I've done a couple where... At the end, you know, two weeks later or a week later, I asked to see how it went. What were the numbers like? Can you show me the breakdown? And I've done some where, you know, they raised a quarter of a million or $500,000. And then when they give you the expense thing, if you, if they're honest with you, they show you the whole thing. And you're like, guys, you made, you made $18,000 by the time you paid for the ban and paid for this and paid for that. And they realized, oh, we just threw a great big party. We thought we were going to be able to have more money. It's like, yeah, some some nonprofits not well run. And you're know, like, if, if people knew that you, you raised 500 and you paid the band and paid the guy and paid the cater and paid the hotel and paid this and paid, paid, paid all the way down and hardly anything was left over, they'd be less likely to come back the next year. So um, charity, charity navigator, a, a great site to look for to see if you're giving the money to a good cause. So, oh, come on, go Hawks. Come on, Russell. Come on. 
Come on, Russell. Come on. Come on. Get away from Abishag. Abishag the Shunammite. Okay. Why is that so funny? Abishag the Shunammite. Because it's, it's a biblical That's reference. Got, oh, I got to know. David, David got caught looking out the window at Abishag the Shunammite. Oh, you know, I'm not going to waste. I'm not, I don't know. No, no, I'm a believer. No, I'm a believer. Heretic. Here we go. Hey, look, there's Jack Stein. And there you are as well, listening to the John Curley, Sherry Ellicott Show. Hey, Jack. You can write to us at MyNorthwest.com. Come on in to the State Review text line one 973 Okay. Um, do, does your work give you satisfaction? How old are you, Jack? I mean, uh, what's the what's the age difference between the two of us? You are uh, oh, yeah, 35 years old, John, which makes me about right. a third of your age. Yeah. Thank you. When you were coming up, did people tell you, you know, that, you know, you should pick a career and there would be job satisfaction and, and you, your work will satisfy all these parts of your life? Were you, were you fed that big pile of poop? No, it was, it was, you have to, you know, no one ever really gave me any direction in life, John, which is why I call you every weekend for some direction. <laughs> <laughs> why I call you every weekend. The second part, the second part of that sentence is true. We do call, we do talk almost every weekend, but no, I was just wondering at what point did, did young people, were young people told, like Andrew's in there running the board, he's the uh, under 25. He had just had his birthday on Saturday. I am, I am 25 did, now. Did, I'm, I'm at 25. Yes. Right. Right. So, so did someone tell you that work was supposed to fulfill all these parts of your life? Andrew? Anyone? Oh, you're asking me. I'm sorry. Hello? I was asking Jack. What's the question? No, I'm asking you. Ah. <laughs> oh, forget it. <laughs> Moving on. Wait, John, I think – why? Did this happen to you, John? Did did somebody say no, to you – No, I'm building up. In... I'm just trying to find out. Because, okay. No, 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 no. I'm just, Jack, I'm just trying to find out. Like, for instance, here's the CBS story that yeah. – um, I don't even know if it's sound on or not – that apparently they're going to come up with this new law that's going to ban the boss from sending you emails uh, after work hours. You need a law for that. Mm-hmm. You want me to read it for you, John? Because it says where an employer contacts an employee during the period when there is no mutually agreed out of work hours, the employee A shall not be obliged to respond and shall have the right to disconnect and B may choose to respond for which the employee shall be entitled to get compensation. So you can charge. Okay. Um, And do you think we need a law for that? Uh, yeah, actually, I do, John, because if you think about it in, in Germany, for instance, it's illegal for your employer to contact you after hours. They just simply can't do it. They can't text mm-hmm. you. They can't call you. They can't email you. I think right. there needs to be better separation, obviously not in every industry. Like if you're a doctor and you're, <laughs> you're a heart surgeon, yeah. obviously, you might get a phone yeah. call at 4 o'clock in the morning. For you and I, obviously, you know, we might get a phone call. Hey, you know, Sherry is sick today. Can you come in? That makes perfect sense. But for other people, I think it. I think that it's good to have a certain amount of separation and and healthy to know that your boss isn't going to call you. Uh, uh, you know, as as so, no one's going to call Andrew when he leaves the studio at seven o'clock tonight, right? I see. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
but to have the government step in, what the government is trying to do is saying, listen, if you answer that email, then you need to be paid by answering that email. You're back on the clock again, right? That, that, what's, that's what they're trying to do. And by the way, the countries that they point out, Kenya, um, has this, uh, France has it, Germany has it as well, creating the distinction between when I'm at work and when I'm at home. You can choose not to answer the email. Or you could just simply call back, say, "Hey, I'm at work, I'm at home, I'm with the kids, and I'm I'm not going to be doing this work." I've always I'm always a greater advocate for human being to human being, employee to employer, as opposed to government coming in and telling uh, and stepping in between the relationship between the employer and the employee. Mm. I don't think I don't think yes. it really does anything for, as far as just real communication and real understanding with a pre- well. What can I say? That's the law. Blah. You know, you're much better off being able to have a clear understanding with how the boss can contact you and how you respond to the boss. I like that. I actually, I prefer that, John. I prefer that in your employment contract with the company, they say, hey, by the way, one of our incentives is we won't be contacting you. Uh, we won't be calling Andrew and wishing him a happy birthday. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> We'll just Got be it. leaving you alone. And I, I think that that might actually be a perk in so many ways for many, many people to know that they work for a company that will not be contacting them off hours. But plus, also, don't you think there's something to be said if the boss asks you and it's after hours and they, in a nice way, listen, I know you're at home. I hate to bug you or something, but could you do me a favor? Can you send me that Anderson report? Or if you have it, can you bring it in tomorrow or whatever? And the person responds, yeah, I'll get that for you. It's almost like the coach used to say in football, it, show me how hard you practice and you'll be on the field for the game on Saturday. And those people are just kind of walking through the practice or not running the quarter mile uh, track. You're not running your intervals fast enough. You know, you're not going to get a chance to play. Um, and it's the same sort of thing that if you do better than somebody else and you push a little harder and you respond quickly, you move up. Is there something wrong with that? No, but well, some people are go-getters though, John, and some people are lazy. You know, some people like you and I were go-getters. We do stuff. You have a business, I have a business. We we there's things that occur within our brain that that push us forward, momentum. Other people are lazy and they think to themselves, "Well, I'm going to go to Kroger and I'll be there from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. <laughs> I'm going to go home yeah. and I'm going to play Xbox and that's going to be my life, right? So maybe yeah. for those people, they need that. They need that a security blanket, I guess, is the best way to put it, to know that they won't be called uh, at 5 o'clock when they're you know playing Overwatch 2 and having their boss say, hey, by the way, can you come in early tomorrow? Uh, Jeopardy music for Jack Stein, please, Andrew. Because <clears throat> here's the question. Jack, uh... What percentage of Americans are lazy? What percentage of Americans are lazy? Mm. Wait, you're supposed to say <laughs> that's not the way Jeopardy works. Uh, uh, <laughs> this percentage of Americans are lazy. <laughs> I'm going to say 65% of Americans are lazy. Yeah, 65 Oh, so Mister, this is not the way Jeopardy works. Why don't you Why don't you learn how to answer in the form of a question? <laughs> what is sixty five percent of Americans? What, what are sixty five percent of Americans? <laughs> I don't know. I lose apparently. Uh, ask Ask uh, Chris Martin. Chris, play music for Chris Martin. Chris Martin. This percentage of Americans are lazy. <laughs> 
what is 37%? Okay. And that is incorrect. I'm sorry, Andrew, have a chance to steal. <laughs> uh, what is uh, uh, 80%? The answer is 80%. Correct. You've controlled the board. It is 80%. I would say most people... Stop, Jack. Most people are lazy. I saw and I read this gigantic article in um, Harper's. Would a caveman take the escalator? And the answer is yes, because people will always take the path of least resistance. The thing that motivates you, Jack, and motivates me is a deep, deep neurotic sense of paranoia that at any minute we're going to lose our job. We would generally be more lazy if we didn't have this sort of thing eating away at us, telling us at any minute we could be replaced. All right? Yes, yes. That's why there are those weirdos that like 18 hours a day. But if you dig in deep, you find out there's something else pushing them. Something is. But your general state, general state is to find comfort, is to find comfort and to not have to do much. That's why the answer is 80% in my made up Mm -hmm. world. Stein sitting in for Sherry Elliger. Thank you, Jack, for doing this. Sitting for everybody over there. Apparently, um, people don't only get uh, drunk because they get the hangover and they feel horrible in the morning. So why not switch over to a friendlier mind-altering thing like acid? No, it's so funny. I, um, I've i tried to do DMT twice, mm. and I haven't actually broken through. It's hard. It's really hard. I think I've already broken through. How? Like you mean, you mean life? Or? Life! I feel like I've already broken no, through. But, dude, the weird thing is, once you break through on a drug, you realize that life is the trip. No exactly. lie, that's what you realize. Life is the trip, and the acid of life is creativity. Wow, Ugh. let's assume they've <laughs> got to be high right now. So our psychedelics, <laughs> our psychedelics, the new, thank you for finding that, Chris Martin. Um <laughs> Chris was sitting next to that woman in the back of that car when they were recorded that. Are psychedelics <laughs> the new club drug of choice? Oh, man. You're laughing uh, hard John, at this. I, yeah, well, because psychedelics, John, you know me, I have a very special relationship with psychedelics. Yes, you do. And I, yes, I, you do. I feel, I feel like, uh, and maybe it's because I do shamanic rituals with people. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's because that's the way I, I revere the psychedelics. I find the idea of, of taking a bunch of LSD and going to a rave to be a horrifying experience. I find the idea, the very idea of it gives me anxiety Yes. because you, how can you process anything when you have lights and Andrew, find me some techno music. What are the kids listening to these days? <laughs> you're not listening to, you know, you're not listening to, I don't know, Led Zeppelin anymore and, or, or Pink Floyd and, and figuring mm. out, you know, what's through the wall, man. Now it's just noises. It's just honking and, and beeps and boops and it's just it's chaotic noise. And so how can you do any heavy processing in an environment where it's sweating and you're rubbing up against people and then John Curley is there and you're like, what's yeah, John yeah, Curley yeah. doing at this rave? You know what I mean? But <laughs> so people are, whoa, wow, I'm, the reality is the reality right now. What is right? 
So, but if people, okay, Andrew, stop. Stop. (laughs) Wow. It's not fair to anybody on acid right now listening to both us and the music. But for in in this piece, they basically say that, yeah, people are not drinking. They're doing acid or mushrooms or something else and then going out because they don't like the, the after effect in the morning, um, mm. of, of the alcohol, the hangover. But maybe you also, there's some, you know, residual effect to, to acid, I assume 24 hours later or 10 hours later. Yeah, well, there's it's not a hangover effect, but there is a certain amount of cognitive uh, trade-off that you're having between yourself and the substance. To say you're not compromised after doing psychedelics, I think, is, is not f- – and by compromise, I don't necessarily mean that in a negative way. It's just you, you have ingested substances that have altered the, the neurochemical balance in your brain, and now you're going to pretend like you're a normal human being the day after? I don't think so. I think it's not the case. Plus, also, when you're – I remember I had to go take some sort of test. I forgot what it was for, um, some psychology test or something or uh, to get prescribed for something. And they said I wasn't allowed to take mushrooms or acid. It was a whole list of all the stuff you weren't allowed to take prior to, like a week out, because they kind of wanted you as stone-cold sober as possible so that you would you know, be testing at your baseline of reality. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So I guess as these drugs are becoming more present and we've decriminalized them, more people get a chance to experience them. But of course, there's also the fear of, you know, people bringing in their strips and their testing and all that other stuff that's happening in the clubs. Make sure you're not getting any fentanyl.